Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me now to the book of Joshua. And we've made it to chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. We'll read various verses. We'll start in a moment in verse 3. Joshua chapter 10. We'll start in that third verse. General Douglas MacArthur was a famous general in World War II. And after the war, he was asked during an interview, what is the most important lesson that a soldier needs to learn? He quickly replied, he must learn that there is no substitute for victory. Now that's true when it comes to physical warfare, but we know that is also true even more so when it comes to spiritual warfare. There is no substitute for victory. And yet it seems like so many times in our lives we settle for less than victory. We sing those words, victory in Jesus. We know that we have victory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is true spiritually. We know this is true positionally, but all too often it's not true practically when it comes to how we live our lives. We don't experience that total victory God wants to give us, whether it's in our homes or our marriages, our personal lives, even in our churches. And please understand, when I talk to you this morning about total victory, that doesn't mean we're not going to have battles that we have to fight. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be successful every single time because we're not. It means that there's never a battle in which we fight in which total victory is not an option. It means there's never a temptation that I cannot resist. There's never an assignment God gives me that I cannot complete. There's never a crisis I have to go through that I cannot endure. That's what total victory means. Now, we've been studying the book of Joshua. Every single battle that we see in this book tells us something about victory in the Christian life. And in our scripture this morning, Israel is very suddenly put in a position where they have to fight a battle that they, in their minds, were not ready to fight. They were not prepared to fight. And yet, in spite of that, God intervenes and gives them total and complete victory. So this morning, we're going to see some things that God can do. We're going to see some things that we can trust that God will do so that we can experience the victory that he wants to give us on a regular basis. And first of all, God redeems our mistakes. God redeems our mistakes. I talked a little bit about this last week, but in chapter 10, we're going to see how God redeems a mistake that Joshua and Israel made in chapter 9. Let's start in verse 3. It says, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Last week we read the story of the Gibeonites, how they tricked Israel, how they deceived them into making a covenant with them. And when that happens, the Bible tells us about this 
king named Adonai Zedek. Now, don't let his name fool you. Adonai Zedek means the Lord of righteousness. He was not the Lord, and he was not righteous. He actually was a very evil king. And this king, Adonai Zedek, said to himself, it's bad enough that we've got to fight Israel, but now we have to fight Israel and Gibeon. So he came up with an idea. He started recruiting these other kings, and he got four other kings to join him. He said, how about we make a pact? How about we form an alliance? And together, we'll gang up on Gibeon. We'll destroy Gibeon. And once we've done that, our chances against Israel will improve greatly. Well, somehow the Gibeonites found out they were about to get walloped. And look at what happened in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. The same people we saw last week who deceived Israel, now they are begging Israel for help. Please help us. Please come save us. Now, the easiest thing in the world would have been for Israel to say, sorry, not our problem. The easiest thing in the world would have been for them to say, that's what you get, or you're getting what you deserve. But no, that's not what they did. Because they knew that they were bound by the covenant that they had made with Gibeon. So verse 7 says, So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Just like that, without any delay, Joshua and the men of war made that journey from Gilgal to Gibeon. They had no time to prepare. They had no battle plan whatsoever. They're not quite sure what is going to happen when they get there. If you could imagine being in Joshua's position, imagine you are one army and you are on your way suddenly without notice to fight against five armies. Would you be a little bit nervous? Of course you would. And that's why at some point along the way, God simply reminded Joshua of the things that he had already told him before. Don't fear. He said, I've already delivered them into your hand. Once again, God is speaking of a battle that hasn't started yet in the past tense because the result of the battle was so certain and their victory was so sure. And God says, not one of them will stand before you. Now listen to me carefully. Whenever God speaks, God never wastes a single word. God didn't say to Joshua, fear not, because he was not afraid. God said to Joshua, fear not, because God saw what was in his heart, and he saw some fear there. He was afraid, but he did not have to be. Now, it was, as we saw last week, a mistake, a very big mistake for Israel to make this covenant with Gibeon. But I want you to notice what God does here 
and how he uses their mistake. That covenant that Israel made with Gibeon, it becomes the tool that God uses to bring all of these other kings together. So instead of Israel having to fight five separate battles in five separate places against five separate armies, now they're going to fight just one battle in which God intervenes and God gives them the victory. So God is going to take their blunder and he's going to turn it into a blessing. God not only uses Israel, but he's actually using the mistake that they made and he is turning their mistake into an advantage. And folks, what God did for Israel... He's willing to do for you. He's willing to do for me. I wonder, have any of you ever needed to get out of a situation you put yourself in? Maybe somebody would say, Pastor, I got in debt, but I want to honor you with my finances. I want to be generous. I need you to help me out. Maybe someone would say, Pastor, I married a non-believer. I knew what the Bible said about being unequally yoked, but I did it. And God, I want to honor you in my marriage. I want to honor you in my home. I need you to help me now. Maybe some of you would have to say, God, I didn't raise my children in the right way. I didn't raise them to fear you and love you. And now there's that son or daughter who's far from the Lord, and you would say, God, I need you to save them. I need you to bring them home. I need you to help me now. Now listen, if any of these apply to you or more, listen to me carefully. Don't you believe for one second that God will not help you because you created the mess that you're in. He may not make it go away, but listen, he will redeem it. He will use it. He will bring good out of it. He will take even your mistake, even your sin, and he will redeem it and use it for his good purposes. I'm so glad God does that in our lives. God redeems our mistakes, but then we also see in this story how God fights our battles. Look at verse 9. Joshua, therefore, came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. I told you last week that Gilgal was about 25 miles from Gibeon. It was also a significant increase in elevation. So Israel had to march all night long uphill to get there. And don't you just know that when they arrived they were completely exhausted before the battle had even started. You know what I think? I think that's exactly the way God wanted it. I believe God put them in a position where he made sure that their strength was gone so that his strength could be displayed, so that his strength could be made perfect through them, and so that everyone would see and know that he was the one who won the battle. Look at verse 10. It says, so the Lord routed them. Wait, who routed them? The Lord routed them before Israel. 
killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Haran, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Now get this. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. God fought for Israel, and he did so by performing two miracles. The first one we see in verse 11, the Bible says, as the Amorites fled, God caused hail to come down. You say, well, that's not a miracle. We've seen hail. We've experienced hail. But notice this, the hail does not land on the Israelites. Somehow, each piece of hail, each rock only falls on the Amorites. And not only that, but the Bible says that there were more killed by the hail than there were killed by the sword. Now, this is a miracle all by itself. Oftentimes, however, this miracle gets forgotten because it winds up in the shadow of the next miracle, which is the one that everybody talks about. Look at verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. Notice he spoke to the Lord. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped. The people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. The battle was going well, but at some point Joshua noticed that there just weren't enough hours in the day. That at the rate they were going, they would not be able to finish them off before dark. And of course, back then, they didn't have spotlights. Back then, they didn't have night goggle visions or anything like that. If they were not able to finish the battle before the sun went down, then instead of a complete victory, a total victory, it would be a partial victory at best. And so Joshua, seeing that he was in a very desperate situation, he prays one of the most amazing prayers that you will find in all of the word of God. He speaks to the sun and the moon, but the Bible says he was praying to the Lord. He said, sun, stand still. Moon, stand still. In other words, God, I, this is what I need you to do. I need you to extend this day. And the Bible says he prayed this in the sight of Israel. Hey, I got to hand it to Joshua. I mean, if I had actually prayed that prayer, I think I would have whispered it. That way, if it didn't happen, you know, if it did happen, I could tell everybody, yeah, I prayed for that. But if it didn't happen, then no one would know what I, I prayed for. And so you got to give credit to Joshua. He prayed this prayer publicly for everyone to hear. And verse 13 says that the sun stood in its place and did not go down for about a day. Now, 
Sometimes we refer to this as Joshua's long day or the long day. And I want to point out in many civilizations that took very good records, there is a record of an unusually long extended day that took place, or in some cases, depending on where they were, an unusually long extended night that took place. But we can understand this is one of the most criticized, one of the most attacked stories in all of the Bible. And we can just imagine what skeptics say about this. We can imagine what uh, non-believers say about this. They say, come on. We know that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. And we know that the earth is moving at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. You may not feel like it, but that's how fast you're going right now. And pastor, what would happen if all of a sudden somehow the earth were to stop at its place? Wouldn't we all just go flying off into space? Well, let me ask you a question. Is the God who created the law of gravity able to manipulate the law that he created? Yes. If a man creates a watch, are you surprised if he is able to then make it stop ticking? Would that sound ludicrous to you? Of course not. Well, then why would we believe that the God who spoke the world into existence by the power of his own word, why would we believe that he is not able or willing to act supernaturally in human history? You know, the writer of Joshua may not have understood what we understand today about physics or about astronomy, but even he understood that God was performing a miracle. He doesn't hide the ball from us. He tells us God was doing something unlike anything he'd ever done before. Look at verse 14. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, hear me carefully. Passages like this, stories like this in Joshua chapter 10, they're there for a reason because they force us to make up our minds as to what we really believe about God. What kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you serve? And I'm not saying that we check our brains at the door when we come into church or when we open up this book. No, we are to love God with our minds, the Bible says. But I am saying that there are certain things in the Word of God that you are forced to accept by faith because at the end of the day, there is no way for us to comprehend them because God is bigger and He is greater than our ability to comprehend. And the real reason why people attack this particular story, it's not because it's so hard to believe. It's really because they have a very small view of God. I'll tell you, the God I believe in wouldn't break a sweat 
causing all of the celestial beings in the universe to halt in their place at once. There is nothing that is difficult. There is nothing that is impossible for him. And if God can cause the sun, moon, and stars to stop in their place, and if God was willing to do that in response to Joshua's praying, then let me ask you some questions. What are we afraid of? Why in the world would we be afraid of anyone or anything but God? Don't you see that when the people of God are in the will of God, doing the work of God, God will cause the whole universe to work on their behalf. What are we afraid of? Let me also ask you this. What kind of sun, stand, still prayers are we praying? What kind of sun, stand, still prayers are we praying? What are we asking God to do that only God can do? What are we trusting God for that unless God does it, we can only fail? Because I'm going to tell you, God is not insulted and he is not intimidated by large request. It's not a, a sign of, of pride to ask God for big things. In fact, I believe one of the most humble things that you can do is to ask God for something or put yourself in a position in which if God does not come through, you are going to look silly. The same God who made the sun, moon, and stars stand for Joshua, he longs to show himself powerful and faithful and true to anyone and everyone who will call on him and believe that he is the God of the impossible. I believe God wants to work in our lives in such a way that he is the only explanation, and there is no doubt whatsoever that God is fighting for us. We read that statement at the end of verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. It appears four times in Joshua chapter 10, God fought for Israel, God did this God did that. God sent the hail. God extended the day. But I want you to notice that God did all of that in response to the obedience, the work, the faith, and the praying of his people. God fought for them, but they had to get in the battle. About 10 years ago, my family was on vacation. We were in Jacksonville, Florida, hanging out with some of my cousins one day. We decided to go play laser tag. I don't know how many of you have ever played. It's a lot of fun. But we went to go play laser tag, and one of my cousins, he was on my team. He was a U.S. Marine. And so I liked our chances. I said, we're going to do well. And so we played our game, and we shot our little laser guns at each other. And sure enough, our team won. And uh, at the end of the game, I looked at our score, and I scored about 100 points, which sounded pretty good until I realized that my Marine Corps husband scored over 10,000 points. And the moral of the story is not Marines are really good at laser tag, although that is true. The moral of the story is he could have won that battle all on his own. He did not need me on his team. He was just nice enough to let me play along with him. I tell you, in Joshua chapter 10, God could have fought and God could have won this battle on his own. God did not need Israel. 
but God blessed them by allowing them to be a part of it. And yes, God fought for them, and yet Joshua had to believe. Israel had to march. They had to join the battle. Joshua had to pray, and then God responded to all of the above by fighting for them and winning the battle for them. Most of the time, God will not do what only He can do until we start to do what He has told us to do. And that's when God moves, and that's when God fights our battles. One other thing I want you to notice in this passage that we can learn from the story that God does, God eradicates our foes. Something interesting happens after the battle. Look at verse 16. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. Do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So they finished fighting the battle, as Joshua told them. After the battle was over, they came back to that cave, that cave where these five kings were being kept. Skip ahead to verse 24. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. These five kings that put so much fear into the hearts of the Israelites, where are they? They're found hiding in a cave. How absolutely pathetic is that? But Joshua brings them out, and he does something very symbolic. He laid them down, and he told the captains of the army to come and to put their feet on the necks of these kings. This actually was a very, very common practice in those days. Even centuries, many centuries later, the Roman army took up this practice when they had won a great and important battle. The soldiers would gather and each one find the neck of a defeated foe and place their foot at their uh, neck and cry out a victory cry. This represented total victory. And as they do so, Joshua repeats to them the same words of encouragement that God had spoken to him again and again. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Be strong. Be courageous. This is what the Lord will do. And as we read the story and we see what Joshua did with these kings, we can't help but notice some similarities to what our Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus, same name, different languages, what Jesus did for us, what he does to our enemies. For example, Joshua fought a battle against the king of Jerusalem. Jesus fought a battle in Jerusalem. Joshua fought five kings, and the Bible goes on to say he hung them on trees. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was hung upon a tree 
taking the punishment for your sin and mine when he died upon the cross. And Colossians chapter 2 tells us that by doing so, he took all of the charges that were against us and he nailed them to the cross all of our sin, all of our shame, every evil thought, every evil deed, it's as if Jesus nailed it all to the cross for us so that they could not bother us anymore. Joshua had the soldiers place their feet on those king's necks. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 2 and 1 Corinthians 15 that all Enemies have been placed under Jesus' feet. They're already defeated. Joshua won his victory. The Bible says he placed those kings back into that cave, back into a tomb, and he sealed it up with many stones. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died, and he rose again, and a stone was rolled away. And this is why we can experience victory in our lives today, no matter what problem you might be dealing with. There's a very inspirational story that I heard that was told by Bertha Smith. Now, Bertha Smith was a Southern Baptist missionary to China. Uh, we don't talk about her as much because sometimes she gets lost in the shadow of Lottie Moon. We talk about Lottie a whole lot more. But Bertha Smith was another great uh, woman of God who was a missionary to China. And Bertha loved to tell the story of another woman, another missionary who came to work alongside of her. And she said from the moment that new missionary arrived, she had one problem after another. In fact, she counted five problems that she had. Number one, no matter how hard she tried, she just couldn't seem to learn the language. And number two, she had some conflicts with some of the other missionaries. Number three, she couldn't seem to relate to the Chinese people, and they didn't seem to relate to her, and she just felt like there was this distance and there was this gap that she could not be effective. Number four, she was so unbearably lonely on that mission field. And then number five, she developed some physical ailments, some, some sicknesses, and for these five reasons, she decided that maybe she wasn't cut out to be a missionary. She decided that she was going to leave her post and return to the United States. But then she read Joshua chapter 10. Then she read not just the story of this battle, but she read about Joshua and those five kings. How God had defeated them. How he put his foot upon their necks. And you know what that missionary did? She took her five problems and she wrote them out on five separate pieces of paper and then she spread them out. And inspired by this passage of scripture, one at a time, she literally took her foot and placed it on top of each of those five problems. And she said, God, I believe by faith that you called me here. I believe by faith that this is what you want me to be. I believe by faith that you are going to give me victory over each one of these problems. And according to Bertha Smith, you know what happened in the days following? All of a sudden, Mandarin became easier. And before long, she was fluent. 
And the next thing you know, all of these conflicts that she had with other missionaries were resolved, and they were getting along just great. And God put a love in her heart for the Chinese people, and they loved her as well. And all of a sudden, she could relate to them. And she didn't feel lonely anymore. God filled her heart with a peace and a joy. And even her physical ailments, God healed her. And God gave her victory over every one of those five problems. She remained in China and served the Lord faithfully as a missionary for many, many years. I tell you that because I don't know how many problems you have this morning. Maybe you have five. Maybe you have 500. But I know this. I know that the same Jesus who has all enemies beneath his feet, the same Jesus who eradicates our foes is able to give you victory over every single one of them. And this morning, if you will call upon him, and if you've never done so, if you will receive him as Lord of your life, today he'll not only forgive you and save you, but he will give you the greatest victory of all. Would you join me as we pray? Our God, we thank you for the victory that we have through Jesus Christ that 2,000 years ago he was willing to come and fight a battle on our behalf that we could never win. But through his death, his burial, his resurrection, he defeated sin, he defeated death, he defeated the grave, he defeated the devil and every demon from the pit of hell. All foes have been cast beneath his feet. And now he shares with us that victory that he has already won. And we can not only experience that eternally, but we can experience that practically. We can experience that in the here and now. We can have victory in the midst of whatever trial we are in today. God, we thank you. And I don't know what problems various people here today may have. Maybe they've got five, like that missionary in China. Maybe they've got a whole lot more. But God, we believe by faith that if you could create the universe by the power of your word, if you could halt the sun, moon, and stars in their place, there is nothing you cannot do. That you are almighty, that you are all-powerful, and we can trust you in every situation in life. So God, I pray that you'd give us as a people the faith for every trial that we're facing, to believe, God, that you are able. And that if we'll just follow you and seek you and obey you, we don't have to worry about whether or not you will do it. God, I pray for those who are here today who've never come to that place of surrender, who've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. God, I pray that this would be their day of salvation, that this would be their day. They would stop running from you that they would call upon you as Lord and be saved. Have your way in these next few moments. We pray in Jesus' name.